Excellent. So, hi everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, welcome, welcome to the people that are new to Recovery Jam. And um, so tonight we're going to talk about step 12. And I know last time Janet got through the chapter working with others. So step 12 is really, you know, exactly where we're at, right? Because that's the working with others chapter. And um, so I'm going to really uh, lean more into the AA 12 and 12 for step 12. And, um, you know, what it says is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. So, so what that really shows us is that there's three parts to this step. One is the spiritual awakening. Thank you have to have had a spiritual awakening. Two is the carrying the message to other addicts. And the three is the practicing these principles in all our affairs. So it's a three-part step. Um, so if we look at the um, AA 12 and 12, page 106 asks this, this big question which is what do you mean when you talk about a spiritual awakening? People use that all the time. And the answer comes at the bottom of the page and it continues on to page 107. When a man or woman has had a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he has now become able to feel and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. He has been granted a gift, which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being, right? So we have a gift, we get to do things, we have this strength that we absolutely are certain could not have come on our own. We didn't do it on our own and it's a gift. It's a gift, it's something that's given to us. Um, and it's, we have this new state of awareness. It's like this new state of being awake and alive. He's been set on a path which tells him he's really going somewhere, that life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed. And it further goes on to say that he finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. And this, this was on page 106 and 107 of the AA 12 and 12. So, so now like, let's look at that, right? When someone asks, what does it mean to be recovered? This is it, this is part of the definition. We can do things, we can feel things and we believe things that we have never been able to do, feel, or believe on our own. We feel alive inside. We have direction. Our lives have, are full of meaning and are filled with purpose. We become honest, tolerant, which means not so sensitive and touchy, right? If you've got tolerance, it means you have a little bit of thicker skin. Not everything seems to hurt you or affect you so deeply. And we're genuinely concerned with others more than we are about ourselves. 
And this is described, this is a free gift that we make ourselves ready to receive by practicing the 12 steps. And the chapter then gives us a quick description. The chapter is then going to give us a description of these steps. And what I really want to say too, this idea of this like transformation, it, it also is in there's a solution. And I think it's on page 25 when it talks about that God has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. That's what it means to have been recovered, to be recovered. You have this feeling like God is residing right here inside your heart and just living, having you live this very different life than you had before. Now in the AA 12 and 12, it's going to go through quickly a description of what the steps are. Because remember, we've having had a spiritual transformation as a result of the steps. So let's look at the steps real quick. Page 107 says, step one showed us an amazing paradox, we found that we were totally unable to be rid of the alcohol obsession, the food obsession for me, until I first admitted that I was powerless over it, right? Before I could have it removed, I had to admit that it had control over me, that I was owned by it. In step two, we saw that since we could not restore ourselves to sanity, some higher power must necessarily do so if we are to survive. Step three, we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, right? We gave ourselves over to God and we said, God, I'm yours, do with me as thy will, right? God, I'm yours and I trust you. It's really what I say, God, I'm yours and I trust you. Um, Step four, we commenced to search out the things in ourselves which had brought us to physical, moral, and spiritual bankruptcy. That's what it says. Those things inside us caused us physical bankruptcy, moral bankruptcy, and spiritual bankruptcy. And we want to find out precisely what they are. And step five, I love this. It says inventory taken alone wouldn't be enough. We knew we would have to quit the deadly business of living alone with our conflicts. So people in recovery, people who have recovered, do not walk around with secrets, right? We don't walk around hiding our shame, hiding our ugly. You know, like I say, like we, we show our underbelly. We tell the truth about what we are. We show our vulnerable parts. And that was an important part of step five. In step six, many of us balked because we did not wish to have all our defects of character removed because we still loved some of them too much, yet we knew we had to make a settlement with the fundamental principle of step six. So we decided that while we still had some flaws of character, we could not yet relinquish, we ought nevertheless to quit our stubborn, rebellious, hanging on to them. And we said to ourselves, this I cannot do today, perhaps, but I can stop crying out, no, never, right? So some of those defects that it was like real difficult to let go of, step six is where we stop saying, I will never let go of this. It's like, 
I might be struggling to let go of it now, but my hope and my desire is that I'm going to be able to, right? And that's that step six turn. And step seven, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings as he could or would under the conditions. And step eight, we continued our house cleaning. We were in conflict, not just with ourselves, but with people and in the world we had begun to make our peace. And so we listed the people we had harmed and became willing to set things right. And notice it doesn't say willing to say we're sorry. Set things right is very different from an apology, right? My old apologies used to come with, you have to forgive me. No, we don't tell people what they have to do. We go there and demonstrate that we're ready to set things right. We clean it up. In step nine, we made direct amends to those concerned, right? We go out there, we make restitution. We try to clean up the harms we've done. In step 10, we began to get a basis for daily living and then realized we're going to have to continue to take inventory for the rest of our lives. And when we're wrong, promptly admit it. So this is a practice. Step 10, we do it repeatedly over and over. Step 11, we saw that if a higher power had restored us to sanity and had enabled us to live with some peace of mind, in a sorely troubled world, then such a higher power was worth knowing better by as direct contact as possible. The persistent use of meditation and prayer we found did open the channel so that where there had been a trickle, there now was a river. And what I have here is note the word persistent, which means that we're going to really work this spiritual muscle. This prayer and meditation is going to be something that we're going to look to increase and grow and tweak and change and open, right? Repeatedly persistent. So if you sit down a particular morning and you're just not feeling it, don't give up, right? Don't say this prayer thing doesn't work. I've tried it. I just don't, I just can't do it. No, it says persistent. Keep doing it. Keep persisting. Those of us, by the way, that persist with this, do start to feel the river, that the trickle becomes the river. And here it's the perfect explanation of step 12 on page 109. From great numbers of such experiences, we could predict that the doubter who still claimed that he hadn't got the spiritual angle and who still considered his well-loved AA group, the higher power, would presently love God and call him by name. Just think that's beautiful. And it's something that I've experienced myself and I've witnessed it happening for others. At some point, we stop over-explaining the conception of God. We stop over complaint, over explaining the details of my conception. And, and I hear it oftentimes a lot, and I know I used to do it too. I used to make sure that you knew 
that my conception was very different from yours. Oh, it's not the one that, it's not this one. And it's not this one, you know, my conception of God. And at step 12, we stop belaboring over the details. We all know that each inside of us, we have a relationship with a creator that lives inside our hearts, that does something miraculous. And we all just decide we're gonna call that God. And your conception of God can be different from mine. And we make no, we don't really have to spend a lot of time spelling out the differences. It's more the similarities of what God has done for us, right? The power that has entered our lives is the important part. So, you know, we come to love God and we long to live in ways in which we can please God and feel closer to him. And we let go of those placeholders that we once had, the group, the this, the that, we just call it God and we move on and we feel him in our hearts. Okay, so that's the first part of step 12, right? Remember there's three parts. Now let's move on and look at the next part, carrying the message to other compulsive eaters, right? Other alcoholics or compulsive eaters. And on page 109, it says, even the newest of newcomers finds undreamed rewards as he tries to help his brother alcoholic. So we start getting well, and it's really quick that we begin to care deeply about those that are still suffering. Like, you know, a few weeks in, a week or so in, and people begin to naturally want to call their friends who are like, you know, I think I have a friend who's still suffering in this. I, I'm thinking about them. I want to call them and, and let them know about a good meeting. Or I'm, or I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this neighbor that I had. I wonder if she has this problem too. That sort of naturally happens, um, you know. And even before progressing through the steps ourselves, we begin to get the benefits of twelve-step work. And if you're new in this program, if you, if you're not considered yourself recovered, if you're still struggling, right? You can do this. You can do this through outreach calls and texts. That's work that any one of us can do to reach out to other people, right? To offer that there's hope. Step 12, uh, page, I'm sorry, page 110 describes ways we can carry the message. Now we're gonna hear some ways. One, listen at meetings, not just to receive, but to offer reassurance and support. And I do think that's why it's so important to have your camera on in a Zoom meeting so that your presence is felt and seen, right? It, we feel a sense of community with one another when we look around and we see each other's faces. It's very different than looking around and seeing a name. We're humans. We're not just a list of names in a directory, right? I could have taken out a list of names in a directory and never felt a kinship, a comfort, a sense of community. But we sit here and I have to tell you, when people do this, it's helpful. We're all identifying. We're in this place together. You know, I know when we share and we see smiling faces and nodding heads, we're being supported. We're not alone, right? We're not alone. How else do we do it too? We speak when it's our turn. I encourage sponsees. Share when you're at a meeting, 
you know, share when it's appropriate for you to share. We may be shy, we might be self-conscious, but if we speak honestly and with the intention of being useful, then we can be sure that God will give us the right words, right? We should be hopeful and positive in our words. And I would say a meeting, you know, general meeting is not where we just vomit all over the group, right? And um, and just, it's not, by the way, a meeting is not a fifth step. It's different. So I would say, you know, while we can ask each other for help, um, meetings are not places where we like pick off our scabs and bleed publicly for everybody to somehow get this like, and then we feel this like, I've just revealed myself so deeply to this group. Um, and sometimes it's appropriate, you know, to ask for help, to come in in that demeanor. But really a meeting, you know, a general meeting is a place where we're supposed to bring our solutions and how we're practicing the program. There is like in this particular workshop, we leave time for questions and that's different, right? So I, want, I don't want anybody to feel like I'm saying you can't ask a question and that you can't ask for help at that point. You absolutely can, you can. And in fact, that's helpful for other people too, because what it does is it allows other people to feel safe, to be vulnerable, to ask their questions as well, right? So, um, you know, three, we can be the ones to take on the unspectacular but important tasks that make good 12-step work possible, right? And when I first, you know, started coming to meetings years ago, those in-person meetings, um, you know, one of the jobs that I had was like arranging to, you know, set up the coffee pot. Like I set up the coffee pot and I washed the coffee pot out at the end of the meeting. I set up the chairs, right? Uh, there was a closet where the literature was. I would roll out the things and set it up. Uh, not glamorous work, but necessary. And so we may have to, you know, look in a little bit here, but how can we do those unglamorous tasks at these meetings as well? Well, if you have your camera on and you keep your eye open, look for the person who looks like they might need help. Listen to the person, you know, who, who seems like, they're in need. Read the chat box. That's sort of like our virtual coffee pot. See who says that they're struggling. Take their numbers down. Call them. You know, I always try to put my number where my name is so that people can call me, so that it allows people to know that we're available to help one another. Um, you know, make yourself approachable when you make yourself approachable, that is 12-step work. Page 111, highlights some difficulties and growing pains we encounter in 12-step work. One, okay, so here's some difficulties that might happen. We may set our hearts on getting a particular person sobered up and then they relapse. And maybe it'll happen in succession of cases right? Everybody, it's like everybody I work with relapsed, everybody. And then you start feeling discouraged, right? And I think everybody who has sponsored 
has had this difficulty. It's heartbreaking, right? When we grow to love a sponsee and they relapse and they walk away from the program, it happens. It happens again and again. But I'm going to tell you something. Those people are not lost causes. Those people are right here now. And what I would say my experience with those people was I never forgot about them. I didn't hound them, but occasionally I would send them a message saying, you know, you were in my prayers. You were in my prayers today. And I've got one right here, right now, who's like helping man this meeting. So it's like, we never count those people out because God has a plan. Right. And I really believe that God has a plan. Um, I was one of those that I returned. I eventually returned. Some of us, it takes 20 years. Some of us hang around and we get well and disappear and come back and, you know, do this dance thing. Um, so, you know, don't worry about setting your heart on someone. You can absolutely love one another but we can't set our hearts on being responsible for another person's recovery. That is their responsibility and their God's responsibility. Ours is just to carry the message, not to necessarily make sure the message gets delivered, right? We carry it, but we can't necessarily make sure it gets delivered. Number two, we might encounter the reverse situation in which we're highly elated because we seem to have been successful. And here the temptation is to become rather possessive of the newcomers, right? That's my sponsee, that's my sponsee. Don't you know, those, all those people, I got recovered, I got recovered. Like we're cautioned, do not start thinking that because we are not the source of power, right? We are merely carrying the message and it's God that's in charge of delivery, right? So we can't get possessive and we can't take we can't take responsibility either way, whether they recover or not. Um, you know, and we start thinking we can counsel people in all areas of their lives. And it's well intended, perhaps, but we have to remember that although we want to help one another, sponsees are not our children, right? They're not our little children. These are adults who like us have experiences and perspectives. We can make suggestions, but our message should be consistently to remind them to go to God for the answers. So when someone comes and they're like, I don't know what to do about this and this and this, rather than say, well, this is what you must do. You might say, right? I think you should put it in prayer. What do you think God would have you do? What do you believe the right answers would be if God were directing you right now? Generally, people, people land in their own answers and you could, you could offer your experience. You could say, in my experience, I found it most beneficial when I did this, so please pray over it, but so please pray. Um, you know, and I have to say, it's really flattering sometimes when people ask you for advice. Um, but I have to be, we have to be careful, right? Because we, um, we can't start thinking that we're the power source, right? That we have the right to tell other people how to do everything. Okay, number three, 
we may carry the message to so many that we begin to get placed in a position of trust and we're presented with the temptation to overmanage things. And sometimes this causes rebuffs and other consequences which are hard to take. And you know, this is where like having traditions and having recovery partners can help keep you in check. And I have to say, I can fall into this category. You know, uh, people sometimes have responded to certain things I've said. Sometimes the responses have been critical and I can feel it like it's a snub. Not everybody is gonna be pleased by every word that we say. Not everybody is gonna like everything, but it's always a good opportunity for me to examine my motives. Am I trying to be useful and helpful or am I trying to seek approval? And those are good questions to ask ourselves all the time. What is our purpose? What's our reason for speaking? What's our reason for sharing? And I'll tell you, any time before I speak for any group, whether it's, whether it's this meeting or any other meeting or my three-minute pitch on another meeting, really try to think who's the person out here right now who might benefit from hearing this. Not the people who are like, you know, necessarily doing great and doing well and and are my friends and are gonna text me and say, oh, that was awesome. But how about the person who's in pain, right? Who's really in pain. Can I, can I offer words that might be beneficial for that person? Um, and then when we do that, we're not really seeking approval so much as we're seeking to be useful. You know, now it says these difficulties are described as only the pains of growing up and nothing but good can come from them if we turn more and more to the entire 12 steps for the answer. So the funny thing is the 12 steps, all those steps actually teach me how to practice step 12, right? And I would say that the steps were like the on the job training for the work that I'm gonna have to do, right? And that 12 step is the work that I'm gonna have to do. Um, and not only have to do, but want to do. That's the benefit. That's what happens when God enters your heart. You actually wanna do that which you have to do. Um, you know, so one, powerlessness. So let's talk about the steps in my step 12 work. One, powerless. I am powerless over others' recovery, right? If I'm powerless over my disease, 100% I am powerless over everyone else's. Two, believe that God is the only one who can restore anyone that we work with, right? If God was the only power that could restore me, God's the only power that can restore you. Three, just like I turned my will in my life over to the care of God, I put those fellows in God's hands too. When I say, I pray step three, God, I'm yours and I trust you. I say, God, she's yours and I trust you. God, they're yours and I trust you. We turn everything over, including our sponsees to the care and protection of God. You know, the next 14 pages now of the, of the AA 12 and 12 are all about the third part of step 12 practicing these principles in all our affairs.
So, you know, my sponsor has said to me, Melissa, the 12 steps teach you how to live your life, that you're going to practice in the rooms first, and then you're going to take it and you're going to do it out there in the big world. You're going to do it in your family. You're going to do it in your workplace. You're going to do it in your community first in the rooms. You get it down in the rooms and then you take it elsewhere. So page 111 says, now comes the biggest question yet. What about the practice of these principles in all our affairs? All right, what are these affairs anyway? One, family, right? Our family. Can we bring the same spirit of love and tolerance into our sometimes, I love this, deranged family lives that we bring to our group? to our AA group? Can we have the same kind of confidence and faith in these people who have been infected and sometimes crippled by our own illness that we have in our sponsors? So, I mean, I read that and I think, okay, it has been so much easier for me to cut fellows slack than it is to do the same for my own family. I have like, really unrealistic at times, like demands and expectations on the people in my family. And I have much more grace for those in the, in the program, but we're told that we are supposed to show this, like the same confidence in our family that we do in our sponsors. Think about all the faith and trust that we put in our sponsors. We're supposed to now show that same thing for our family members. And, you know, so we're told to have love, tolerance, confidence, and faith in our families. I think that's pretty incredible. Um, two, in our jobs, okay? Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work? And what does that mean, that spirit? That means constantly thinking of others. So in my workplace, yep. I have to constantly think of others in the workplace, not just me looking to get ahead, not just me looking to get my needs met. And for me, um, you know, I think one of the things that I've struggled with in the workplace is, um, you know, I like things my way. I like to be in charge. And, you know, I'm a teacher, so it's sometimes it's easy in a second grade classroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm the one in charge. But really, I'm not. Really, I'm not. You know, there are individuals, there are 28 individual people. They happen to be younger than me. And I happen to be responsible for their care and their education in the moment. But I'm actually not in charge of them as human beings. God is in charge of them. And I was given a responsibility to be their teacher this particular year, right? And I have colleagues and they don't want me telling them what to do just because I think I know best, right? I have to share like the opportunity to hear and be heard and not take credit for everything. Okay, three, the world at large. Can we meet our newly recognized responsibilities to the world at large. What are our new responsibilities? To live in agreement with God's will and to demonstrate that we have been restored to happy and productive lives. So in the world at large, can we contribute 
and not just take. And for me, I mean, it's, it's as simple as like, you know, um, I go to the supermarket, you know, there's the shopping cart. I don't just like wheel it up and let it hit other people's cars. You know, even if it's raining, how about this? Can I take the cart and like bring it back up inside the store when it's raining? Like those are the simple ways that I can practice what I learned in this program in the world at large, right? Um, four, in the religion that we choose, can we now bring purpose and devotion to the religion of our choice? You know, and so we know that life is made up of times where we experience failure as well as success. Can we experience failure without despair? Can we have achievement without growing prideful? And page 112 says, it explains how it is that we can fall short. Our troubles first begin with indifference. We are sober and happy in our AA work. Things go well at home and office. We naturally congratulate ourselves on what later proves to be far too easy and superficial point of view. We temporarily cease to grow because we feel satisfied and there's no need for all of the steps for us. We're doing fine with just a few of them. And in a slang, you know, they call it um, the like practicing the first step and the 12th step and they call it two-stepping. And some people go on like that for years. Okay, I admit I'm powerless and my life's unmanageable, great. And now I'll just carry the message and I won't do anything in between. Never have a resentment, never have to inventory. I don't have to pray, right? None of that other stuff in between. I've got no defects, I'm doing well, right? Powerless and I carry the message. And what happens is we feel life is dull and we're disappointed by our regular small lives. And this is really dangerous for people like us. I would say if you're wondering, if you're heading in that direction, ask yourself some questions. Are you being consistent with your nightly review? Are you looking to grow spiritually? Are you doing just the bare minimum, right? The great danger is that our disease is progressive and coasting will not outrun the avalanche that's going to eventually come. Disease is progressive. So my recovery must be progressive as well. You know, because eventually we all get a big catastrophe. It's just part of being human. It's part of the human experience. Stick around long enough. Not a single person with long-term recovery hasn't experienced death, illness, job loss, heartbreak, disappointment. It, it's, it happens, right? We all get handed a big catastrophe. And if all we've done is the bare minimum, we'll have nothing to fall back on, right? We've got nothing. Think about it like a staircase. If the only stair you have is one in 12, you're gonna fall. That's a mighty big leap in between. Um, okay, page 113, what then? Have we alcoholics or can we get 
the resources to meet these calamities, which come to so many? Can we transform these calamities into assets, sources of growth and comfort in ourselves, to ourselves and those about us? Well, we surely have a chance if we switch from two-stepping to 12-stepping. So you can survive, right? If you do, if you live in the 12 steps. Page 114, it says our basic troubles are the same as everyone else's. But when an honest effort is made to practice these principles in all our affairs, well-grounded AA seem to have the ability by God's grace to take these troubles in stride and turn them into demonstrations of faith. So I have to tell you my own experiences, I have experienced life's difficulties. I've had issues with my kids. I've had issues with my mother, with her aging. I've had like problems at my job, like major problems at my job. You know, how about just the pandemic? How many of us have, have walked through the pandemic and did not return to the food, right? Did not return, but continued on this path. Um, you know, and I would say that all those difficulties, my recovery didn't just survive. They actually, it actually thrived. I don't know why, but I have never grown spiritually on a vacation on the beach. I love vacationing and hanging out on the beach, but I've never grown spiritually in that climate. I seem to grow spiritually when I'm pressed, you know? Um, and what happens is if we go through like this, the principles we learn in the program allow us to somehow go through these times with optimism, serenity, faith, and purpose. And it really makes me think about one of the promises of a spiritual awakening. It's found in the big book in the chapter, Working With Others on page 100. It says, follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. So it's like we don't quite have the same responses to hard circumstances. I can somehow feel sad about a circumstance, but not be enveloped in despair, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm in denial of the circumstances. Like I think about, you know, um, one of the things that was really difficult for me was um, during this pandemic, I could hear my mother was living in Florida and she was declining rapidly. And we were all here in New York and in the East Coast and Northern. And I was, I was listening to her and I was like, holy smokes, like, this isn't good. I'm hearing something. I'm quite nervous. Went down there, went to visit her. And I was horrified. I, I, you know, I laid in bed that night. My mother was sleeping and I sobbed. I was terrified because I realized... I was not going to be able to leave my mother with her car anymore. Like it was, I had to take the keys from her and it was a very painful, hard decision. And I, my mother was not ready. She didn't want to come up North. And I felt like I'm leaving my mother stranded. And I was sad, 
and I was nervous, but I wasn't enveloped in despair. Somehow living this program allowed me to know I believed that it was somehow going to be okay. I, I really felt like, God, she's yours and I trust you. Show me what to do. Show me what's right. And, um, you know, and so we can take our big lumps as they come, but more difficulties are sometimes the lesser problems, right? So I would say, here's the thing, right? Those big difficulties actually sometimes aren't really what take people down. Sometimes it's the lesser problems. It's the pebbles in our shoes, those kind of problems. We offer discover, it says, a greater challenge in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. And our answer is in still more spiritual development. So those small problems, for me, it was, you know, I was not in danger of losing my job, but um, my boss just didn't like me. And I could feel it all the time. And she was not really pleasant to me. And she, she wouldn't greet me. She wasn't saying good morning to me. That pebble in the shoe was more of a challenge to me than my mother's declining situation. You know, it just seemed to drum up more of my defects, more of my stuff. I needed to do far more work around it. Than, than the other. So even seemingly minor problems have the potential to do a great deal of harm if I don't look at them and use them to grow. And how often do we ignore an issue? And I would say for years, I had two modes, denial or obsession. And I would ignore and deny a minor problem. The big ones I couldn't deny. The minor ones, I would deny it and deny it and deny it until it grew so big that I could no longer close my eyes. And then it was the only thing I could see or think about. So I was either living in denial or obsession. Couldn't stop thinking about that minor problem. And so for my minor issues, I still take them through the 10th step. So no problem, right? If it's bugging you, it's important enough to do a 10 step on it, right? And I don't, you know, um, what I would say is that why sometimes I would overlook doing, you know, the, the steps or 10 step over those minor problems is my ego, is my pride, is I don't want other people to think I'm that shallow and that small, that something so insignificant should be bugging me. But that's lacking humility right? That's making me think I'm bigger than I am. So yes, sometimes the ridiculous things bother me and it's important enough for me to bring it through. You know, um, if I don't take them through, what happens is they attach themselves to the other small issues. It's like little magnets collecting together, collecting together, collecting together, and they grow into something huge and overwhelming. Um, so on page 114, it talks about our instincts. And as we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes towards our instincts need to undergo drastic revisions. Our desires for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance and for family satisfaction 
all these have to be tempered and redirected. We have learned that the satisfaction of our instincts cannot be the sole end and aim to our lives. If we place instincts first, we've got the cart before the horse and we are sure to be pulled backwards into disillusions. But when we're willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. So if you look at tempered, if something is tempered, right? Because what we need to do is temper our desires. One, if it's tempered, it means that it's improved the elasticity by heating and then cooling, like tempered glass, right? It gets hot and cooled and it improves its elasticity to improve the resiliency. So what, how does that apply to me? My instincts cannot own me. We're often so incredibly concerned with our desires. I was that my desire for emotional security, that ability to feel happy and satisfied and steady for monetary security, for romantic security, for prestige and power, all of those have to be tempered. And it means that I have to ride the storms of not having every one of my needs met and not just met, but exceeded by all people at all times. You know, um, we all have this need to belong, but I have to have it tempered. It can't be the thing that dominates me. You know, um, we can't place unrealistic demands on people, it says. If I make their behavior, their successes, their affections, my God, I, if my very happiness and sense of security is riding on the backs of how others behave, then now I've just traded in the bondage to the food to the bondage of others. Now I'm actually owned by others, right? I'm trading one thing for another. And um, because here's the truth, guys, people are gonna let us down, right? We are all going to let one another down at some point. And if I spend my life dependent on people, if I make their actions, their thoughts and affections my focus, I am shooting for a moving target, okay? So what's my solution? What's my solution? It means that I temper it. I'm not so sensitive to other people filling me up, but I place it on my relationship with God, that that is first and foremost. There's, you know, there's so much more in, um, in this particular chapter. Um, you know, it talks about the importance of financial. Um, what I really wanna say here is that, um, This idea when we have recovered, when we have reached this 12th step, um, oftentimes we get this idea that we've arrived. You know, people are like, I gotta get through the steps quickly. I gotta get through it quickly. And um, as if they're gonna arrive at a point and then the work is done. But really what step 12 says is that Everything else that came before is preparing you for the most important work. And the most important work, right, is that now that you've had a spiritual awakening, 
You're going to practice everything that you learned. So all that stuff that you were in a race to get through, now you're going to practice it in every area of your life as you carry the message to other people, but also as you practice it in your homes, right? Your careers and in your outside environment. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Liz. Beautiful. Okay, so we have a few minutes for questions. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you're stopping. 